So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Here's what's coming up this month. And we're just like, oh, Michael, can you just envisage us sort of throwing money up and they go, whoa, look at all this money. I mean, this doesn't happen to us. Connecting people, separating people, selling up and shutting down. The reluctant public face of Friends Reunited. Plus. They're essentially like an accidental drug dealer, aren't they? In your back pocket. Alex Fox on sexting addiction and Ollie Peart gets on his bike. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and hello, Chris Walker, staff helmsman at Tower Lifeboat on the Thames. Uh, It is, he says, the busiest lifeboat station in the UK and Ireland, averaging 530 emergency calls per year. Well, he says, I work on a four-on, four-off shift pattern in London, but I live in Poole in Dorset, which means loads of travelling and time away from my family. Your podcast, Ollie, has, over the years, helped me keep sane on my commute. Uh, That is awesome, Chris. Thank you for writing in. Uh, Thank you for the work that you do. And do bear in mind, at least you travel from Poole to London regularly to do something truly worthwhile. I mean, we (laughs) have made Ollie Pitt make that journey uh, just to test a veggie burger. Uh, Thanks as well to everybody who got in touch regarding last month's episode, the night before the meeting. Uh, Harriet on Twitter, at The Modern Man, says, Ollie, thank you for covering Lottie's story. It was simultaneously shocking and sadly all too familiar to so many women who have similar experiences, uh, one of whom, Mel, in New Zealand, has been in touch as well. Uh, she says, Ollie, Lottie's experiences are symptomatic of many industries where men have power and influence, not just fashion. My first job was in the mailroom at an oil company, and the personnel manager there was handsy, got way too close in the lift, and used any excuse to touch or bump against me. I was 16. He was in his 50s. Uh, Thanks for that. Uh, In happier correspondence, though, news has reached me of the birth of that first baby conceived, thanks to Alex's advice in the foxhole. Well, the first that we know of, anyway. Uh, So happy North birthday, Freddie. And uh, many congratulations to Freddie's mum and dad. Hashtag pissmas. Uh, A reminder before we get going that this podcast, though free to download, is not free to produce. If you value what we do... Please contribute financially if you can. Uh, We humbly suggest the price of a pint of beer. All links are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just click beer money and help us make the show. Uh, Some man fans who have recently set up new monthly recurring plans include Susanna Statham, Jonathan Whiskard, Roderick Davies, James Heal, Nick Abelsmith and Jay Slater. Heroes all. 
Uh, right, coming up on today's show, you will learn what a switch kit is, uh, you'll learn why not to take a pregnant woman to Cirque du Soleil, and you'll learn what the ancient Greek term olis bokolix translates as. Let's go. Time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested. With Dorchester's answer to Shigeru Miyamoto, it is Ollie Peart. Hey Ollie, how you doing? I'm alright, thank you. How's the ankle? I've got to the stage of ankle recovery where I've forgotten that I injured it in the first place. Well, the perfect time then for you to have spent a month testing out bikes. Yeah, <laughs> I can't believe that we set this challenge for you, but we did. <laughs> uh, last month, Hannah from Swansea challenged you to make cycling more bearable. Uh, she's heading back to the office this month after lockdown. She can't drive. She wants to avoid public transport. Uh, so what have you discovered that can help Hannah make cycling more bearable? So I started thinking about the things I really hate about cycling because I do have a bike. I've got a hundred quid road bike that I got a second hand. I'm pretty sure it was made in the 80s. And the things I hate about cycling, although I love my bike, are hills. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult to remove hills from your route, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I had to, I had to, to, to make it better, I had to list these things out. There's um, saddle sores and all that kind of stuff. And getting all yes. sweaty and minging. So if I think I'm going to take the bike somewhere... I'm just going to get to work all sweaty and horrible and then I've got to have a shower when I get to work. I don't want to do that. Is your solution to Hannah's question just going to be medicated talcum powder? Because, again, I think that's not what she was looking for. <laughs> no, no <laughs> if it's... If you spent a month just uh, liberally sprinkling Dactarin over yourself, <laughs> <laughs> I think we could do better. No, it is an electric bike. They're sort of going for a bit of a resurgence. Though. I mean, when you say your bikes to me, I'm thinking it kind of looks like a normal pedal bike. Mm-hmm. Except, I presume, when you're dealing with those hills you were discussing, yeah, you can press a button and it. I'm guessing it doesn't pedal for you, but it assists you in some way up to the top. And then I guess you have to charge it when you get to your destination. That's what I'm imagining. This is what differentiates them from a from a moped, right? It's pe- their pedal assist. Okay, so yeah. I got in touch with a company called GoCycle. They're based in the UK and they've been making this electric bike for the last few years. And I actually remember it when it first came out because it looked a bit. It's a bit like a beefed up Brompton. And they sent me uh, their latest model to try out. Well done. Because how much are these things worth? Because I imagine them being quite expensive. Well, yeah, this is the thing that shocked me about this one in particular. So this is very much aimed at the middle-aged businessman who probably got a suit that's worth 500 quid and isn't quite a high-paid job. Mm. Uh, This thing's almost £3,000. It's 2,800 quid. Yeah, it's a lot. And when it arrived, I was a bit like, I'm not sure. uh, how, How can they justify this? I mean, that is the same price as a car, isn't it? You, you could, could buy a decent car. second-hand car for three, yeah. three grand. Yeah, you could, you could pay for a taxi to take you to the station every day for a year for yeah. the same price as the bike. The first thing to say about this one is it folds up and it means that you can take it on a train. So if you want to get to your destination, you can take it on a train and you can go. Um, so Which I thought, actually, I guess, mitigates the price a little bit, doesn't it? Because one of the risks I'd be thinking of having a three grand bike is I don't want to leave it as <laughs> the yeah. Thameslink station. Absolutely. Because someone's going to nick it. I mean, it's pretty heavy. The thing weighs 17 kilos. So it's a bit of a chunk, but they've designed yeah. it in a way that you can sort of wheel it along and things whilst it's folded up, which is quite useful. It arrived and I was like, well, I'm just going to get on this and see what happens. I've never ridden an electric bike before in my life. I've never tried one, so I didn't know what it was going to be like. Hold and on, you charged it first, presumably, though, right? It came charged. I unfolded it, started pedalling. And after sort of like the first pedal, all of a sudden you get this big boost and you're like, this is amazing. This I is am actually, physically fit. It, yeah. And it's <laughs> Look like, how fast it I is can go. literally like magic. <laughs> it just appears into the pedals. You know, when you get on a bike, the minute you hit a hill, you think, well, this is going to hurt. 
You... And then you just get this sudden wave of energy coming through your legs, and it's, it is brilliant. And the best thing about it, the best thing, straight off the bat, is like, I'm riding this like a vicar. I don't well, know what that means. Vic- vicars ride a bike, sat up straight like that, and then they'll yeah. have, you know, so everybody can see their dog collar and stuff. And then I don't they'll... know. I mean, I feel like you're conjuring up an image from the 1950s that I'm unfamiliar with. Yeah, I think the Hovis had. A bit more upright, and then you sort of like, you could you can wave at people. So you could uh, wow. go, oh, good morning, just Mrs. Amazed, Goggins. Like the people in the PR department of this bike company that are selling <laughs> a bike for three grand. Did you tell them that you'd be comparing yourself to the Hovis ad? They'd like this. My, my point is that immediately on getting on the bike and riding it, you realise how effortless it is, and yes. you can wave good morning to Mrs. Goggins as you cycle past. It's really, really mm. easy. Are you saying that I mean, there's genuinely no exertion at all, so you don't need to wear cycling clothes? Well, I used it every day for a week for sort of like relatively short journeys and stuff. And then I thought one of the days I'm going to just I'm going to take this out on a decent ride. So I, I took it down to the coast, which is really hilly from my house. And then uh-huh. back again, like it's, it's big, big hills. And when I got to some of the steeper hills, yes, you do have to exert a bit of energy. Because your feet are still going round, right? You your don't stop still, pedaling. Absolutely. Yeah, your feet yeah. are still going round. But it's no way near as much as you would do on a normal bike. And in fact, when I was coming up one of the hills on the way back, there was this guy in front of me with all his stuff on his Lycra and bits and bobs and the clipping pedals. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to skin this guy. And I am literally, <laughs> I'm literally just wearing trainers. This is going to be amazing. And yet I was exerting a bit of energy, but I just cruised past this sweaty ball of meat panting up the hill. And I was just like, good morning. <laughs> just but he's not going to see you and think you're winning at life, is he? He's going to see you and think you've taken the chump's way out. He uh, knows that's an electric bike. He knows you're not pedalling. Well, this is the thing, right? So in the UK... Last year, there were 70,000 e-bikes sold. And in Germany, there were a million. It's, it's a cultural thing. So in the UK, you know Strava? Strava's basically a cycling app where you... Oh, it's one of the things where you share your route. You share your route, say, exactly. I think right, they use yeah. it for running and stuff like that. Okay, but yeah. on Strava, hardcore cyclists are getting really pissed off with people on e-bikes, breaking all the records, <laughs> and they're getting up on the leaderboard. So they hate them. These These hardcore cyclists are like, no... E-bikes are cheating. And it's a cultural thing in this country where it's almost like a, a status symbol to to have all the gear and cycle properly and have calves the size of houses rather yeah. than get on an e-bike and cycle to work. Whereas on the continent, they're just like, yeah, whatever, I just want to get to work and not be sweaty. And the government have just changed the rule on the cycle to work scheme where it used to be up to £1,000, but now there's no limit on it. That's a signal for people to buy e-bikes, What's the I cycle think. to work scheme? The cycle to work scheme is where your employer can register you and you can spread the payments of a bike so it means that you, ah, you, you basically okay. get an interest-free ra- loan to to buy a bike that's cool okay and then legality i mean it seems a bit fuzzy to me we've talked before haven't we about like those kind of renter scooters you can get in city centers these days and how it's all a bit kind of unclear what's legal and what isn't what's the deal with e-bikes e-bikes are 100 percent legal in the uk however they are limited to a 250-watt motor. Uh, so that will take you to about 15, maybe 20 miles an hour, something like that. But they have to be pedal assist, so you can't use it like a moped where you've got a throttle. Elsewhere in the world, like in the United States, for example, you can have an 1,000-watt a th- a motor if you want, and they don't have to be pedal assist. So you don't have to pedal at all. You can just sort of depend solely on the motor. And that's proved a bit of a problem. So in New York, they've banned e-bikes completely. Because, really? Even yeah. the ones that are perfectly legitimate here 
absolutely yeah because Because people were effectively going to work on a rocket i mean they weren't riding the uk based or european ones because why would you if you can have one with a thousand watt motor at the same price as 250 watt motor you'll go for that what you can do here not legally hasten to add but you could buy one and i know somebody that's bought one and had it de-restricted Ooh, so, this is like when people get the Amazon Prime sticks, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can watch all the US sitcom. <laughs> it's exactly that. I mean, it, it invalidates the warranty and yeah. you're not insured, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you're doing it at your own risk and it's also illegal. Let's imagine, though, that Hannah from Swansea doesn't want to spend loads of money on, a, on an e-bike. And in fact, maybe already has a bike. She says she wants to make cycling more bearable. What can she, what can she do? One thing she could do is get an electric bike conversion kit. So you can convert your existing bike into an electric bike. There's a company in the UK called Switch, which they spell all like trendy, S-W-Y-T-C-H. And uh, you can pre-order their kit now. It's basically a battery which goes on your handlebars and then you change the front wheel and you're good to go. I mean, I'm the kind of person who really thinks twice before I paint a garden bench. Do you know what I mean? In case I make a mistake. (laughs) Like the idea of trying to fix something onto a bike that's got a motor and a really heavy battery in it. I just, what? I would just imagine myself electrocuting myself. The reason this company exists, right, is because they've realised that to do it yourself is quite difficult, so they've made it really easy. But you okay. can, for even less money, you can go onto Amazon and you can buy a conversion kit for 180 quid. But wow. The, 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 yeah, don't wow it just yet, because the thing about that is you have to know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, she could go and buy a Sinclair C5 from eBay, and she? <laughs> let's just deal with the bounds of reality here. And I would uh, recommend that. <laughs> would you? Have you been on one? I haven't, but I really want to. Can it be a chance? My dad had one when I was a kid. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. How many people actually had those things? I know. We only had it for about six months. I mean, he was a car dealer, so he sold it. But the thing I remember most about it was not me being on it, but watching my Uncle Roy take a corner and flip. Oh, God. Right on his head. But they, you know, that, that, was a, that, that was a, the idea of electric bikes and electric things like that has been over, for, uh, been around Starts for over a hundred years. So yeah. it's like, you know, I do think we're sort of heading back in that direction again, especially post Corona. Anyway, point is, she's probably not going to do any of these things. Let's just say she's got a normal bike and she wants to make cycling more bearable. Can you think of anything else she can do to basically distract herself from the mundanity? A mobile phone holder. I have one on my bike, and basically, you just load up maps, and you don't get lost. And I know it sounds like a really simple thing, but trust me, it just makes your life so much easier. And Apple have just announced that they're doing turn-by-turn cycling directions to their Apple Watch Oh, as that's well. good. Although Apple Maps is appalling. Apple Maps is absolutely dreadful. The Google, Google Maps, I use Google Maps uh, and the cycling directions on there. They're pretty good. You know, so- I don't ask much from Maps, actually. I just want to get to the fucking place I wrote in. That's all we ask. <laughs> Apple it? fail me very yeah. regularly on that. But the other thing I've got, and I love, are augmented audio sunglasses. Oh, are those those Bose things? Yeah. I've seen them in the shop window mm. and thought, that's an interesting product for the man who has everything. <laughs> the thing is, because you can hear everything. So you can hear traffic, you can hear cars. If somebody honks you, you can hear it, but you can listen to your music. And So it, hold on, there's speakers in the armbands of the sunglasses. Yes, and they sound great, actually. And the other thing that they're good for is directions. So even though if you've got the screen in front of you, yeah. Google Maps reads that out through, your, through the headphones, and they're brilliant. So the idea is then you can hear cars coming and you can hear people saying, get out of the way! Yeah, exactly. What are you doing, you stupid e-bike rider? <laughs> the problem, it seemed to me, with that particular device is they're built around sunglasses, not glasses. And in this country, I mean, it's fine right now, but in November, you're not going to be wearing sunglasses, are you? Yeah, no, that's it's a good point. But you can get a Bluetooth helmet, which also has bone-conducting audio in it as well. Has doing this challenge, Ollie, rekindled your love for cycling in any way? No, not normal cycling. In fact, it's reinforced 
how much I hate normal cycling, but right. e-bikes and e-cycling. But now you want an e-bike. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't afford. No, can't Great. afford one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we really underlined that for you and everybody. Um, here's your challenge for next month. It's also from someone called Hannah, but it's a different Hannah, uh, who says, I'm a 33-year-old whose friends and family are very much in the having children phase of life. And I'd like to hear Ollie investigate the trend of being child-free by choice, like me and my partner who have chosen not to have kids. There are such a range of reasons people might have made this decision, but it can still be quite stigmatised and can feel isolating at times, especially when you hit your 30s and the world seems to go baby crazy. Ollie, you're in your 30s. Do you relate to this? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and just it, it's it is baby mad and also sorry ollie but friends just think you care what their kids are doing i don't care yes i do remember myself when i didn't have any children browsing through my facebook timeline and seeing lots of close-ups of people's babies mm. and sometimes like if you're lying in bed looking at an ipad suddenly having a baby looking at you is quite it's a bit of a shock yeah it's really weird because because of all all the lockdown stuff and having more sort of video calls and chats with people, um, I've I've had it qu- too many times to count now. Where it'll be like, "Hey man, how are you doing? How's things?" And then all of a sudden, the phone is thrust in the baby's face, and I'm like, "Oh no, I want to talk to you, not an infant that can't say yes. anything." I literally don't care. That is unacceptable. However, my understanding of your personal situation is that you and the missus have not made the same decision as Hannah, right? You haven't actually decided not to have children. Well, you haven't decided, right? Yeah, I, we, we're different from uh, Hannah in that we haven't explicitly said, oh, we're never going to have kids. But we have just decided at this point that it's not the right time for us to have kids. I mean, it sounds to me what you've just said is something that you've rehearsed before because maybe people have said to you, <laughs> when are you going to have kids then? When are you going to have kids? So do you relate to that? Like, do you feel that it's a bit stigmatised? Yeah, yeah. Especially when you hit your 30s, it definitely, you people do ask that question. And, and you see your your friends having kids more often and you kind of think oh should i should i be having kids is that is that normal but i've never i i've never really felt like a dad material just yet i'm not sure i'm fully mature enough to look after a child i can, i barely look after myself well before you get any more introspective because uh, i can see you need a month to think about this for your own benefit as much as anything else <laughs> we will give you a month to look into this for hannah find out why it is that there is this trend for being child free by choice and maybe come up with some things that she and her partner can say. Yeah, I'm actually sort of really intrigued by people making the conscious choice. Do you know what I mean? Like saying, oh, I'm definitely never going to have kids. I don't really understand that yet. So I'd be interested to know why people have made that choice. All right, well, we'll leave you to go and investigate that. Thank you very much, Ollie P. Cheers, Ollie. Up next, we mark the 20th anniversary of Friends Reunited. But first, it's our record of the month. It's this by Dizzy. It's called Roman Candles. Go and add it to your summer playlists now. Yeah, you were a friend of mine. Now I'm working in that shift on Beatrice and I go to bed to ride. This local band And the money is shit But I've got somewhere to sleep at night And I'm just stuck in this town I can't handle watching you light it up From the north and parking lot While I'm just sitting 
If I asked you right now to track down your school friends online, it probably wouldn't take you much more than a few minutes. You'd find a shared connection on Facebook or LinkedIn. Everyone is a few clicks away. But 20 years ago, when AOL was the world's most popular website, most users had dial-up and searching on the web involved asking Jeeves, things were very different. In June 2000, Two computer engineers from Barnet, husband and wife Steve and Julie Pankhurst, launched friendsreunited.co.uk and within a year they had a million subscribers. Now that is two years before Friendster, three years before MySpace and four years before Facebook. And yet, I bet you've never heard a podcast interview with them, even though they have some claim to having invented social networking. So when I realised that they still live round the corner from me in Barnet, I couldn't resist tracking them down. Uh, it was May 2017 that I first asked Julie whether she would do an interview with me. She said no. Then in 2018, I asked again and she said no. Uh, and in 2019, I asked again uh, and she said no. But she did say she'd meet me for a cup of coffee in the cafe. I asked her again and she said no. <laughs> but this year, on the 20th anniversary of Friends Reunited, I finally persuaded her to talk to me on mic. Ollie, you might not recognise this, but I absolutely hate doing interviews. Like, really, really, really hated doing interviews. Hence me being able to say, no, I'm not ever going to do one again since we sold the site. (laughs) Until you... I don't know how you managed to get me to do this I think because it's a podcast it's a bit different and because you promised you'd edit it and take all the the bits where um I sound like a right Charlie out to make it down to like 30 seconds worth (laughs) (laughs) so every interview I'd start I would always start with well I was pregnant with my daughter Amber when I came up with the idea of Friends Reunited I'd always start with that but there's actually um there's more to it In fact, the real story begins before Julie was even born, when her grandfather abandoned her dad's family. So in around 1999, I'd been asking my father if he wanted to get back in touch with his father who left him when he was seven or eight, nine years old. He'd always said, no, why would I want to get back in touch with him? He never got in touch with me. And in 1999, he said, do you know what? I'd really like to know what's happened to my father. Straight away, I went on to this website. It's called phonenumbers.net. And I knew that my father's father went to, to live in Denmark, in Aarhus. So I put in to this website. My, my maiden name was... Oh, I shouldn't tell you my maiden name, really, should I? Because, you know... <laughs> but my maiden name was Hill. But over in Denmark, turns out there weren't that many people with the surname Hill. So I physically wrote letters to, I think there was like nine people with a surname Hill and wrote saying, I'm trying to do some family research. I wonder if you can help me. I'm trying to track down uh, a man called Harold Hill. So you didn't say, I'm trying to track down my grandfather? No. So I wrote to them, sent the letter off on the Friday. And on the Monday morning, I came home from work and there was an answer phone message from this man who said, I was so intrigued by your letter that I've done some research and I've gone to the local library over in Aarhus and I've phoned all the people with the surname Hill. 
And he said the first person, there's no answer, and the second person was a woman, and she is his wife. And I've contacted her, and she'd really like to talk to you. I mean, that's a hell of a voicemail to receive, isn't it? It's it's one thing to send off a letter. It's almost fun, isn't it, to send off a bunch of letters and, and think, oh, nothing might come of this, but to actually have, when you get home, surprise, here's the voice of someone who's just spoken to your grandfather. It was it was even more nerve-wracking than talking on the radio. Did you have his number then? Um, yes. So I yeah. phoned this lady up and had a lovely chat with her. She could speak English, which was amazing. And she told me how Harold had died three months beforehand. Um, So she's obviously a widow, a new widow. And I'm like, oh dear, okay. So she said, so why would you like to um, speak to him? What what do you want to know? I said, well, you know he was married before in the UK? No. (coughs) Okay. And so it was... It was a bit like that. It was like, oh my goodness. And um, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. I've got a family that I never knew I had. So I recognised the power of the internet. I thought, wow, this is amazing. You can just go on the computer and you can find someone so quickly and get hold of someone literally in the space of a weekend. That's amazing. There was lots of message boards around the place where people were put... Um, I'm looking for my old school friend. Does anyone know her? Her name's this and she went, you know, she lived in this road or whatever. Um, and it was all vague and it was a, a message board, one of a million. You had to find that one message on that message board to recognise that someone was looking for you, for example. Yeah, finding anybody on the internet was just impossible. And so I guess with my database background, I just thought, this is just really obvious. I know exactly how I want it to be in terms of the data structure. I know that I just want people to go to go find their school, find their year, and go boom. They're all the friends that I I went to school with. So rather than thinking, oh, this is a site that just you know a handful of people are going to be interested in, I was looking for a site that everyone was going to be interested in. It's nice to hear that it was an entrepreneurial thought, because. The media always want it to be a human interest story, don't they? So they want you to say there was someone at school that you desperately wanted to connect with and then you created this platform to enable that to happen. And actually, it was a really sad experience of your father being abandoned that actually had triggered this thought in you. And then you came to schools just because there was a business case for that. Yes. There was also that I wanted to know what my friends have got up to, but I didn't necessarily want to meet them. <laughs> and and I guess, Ollie, to be honest, I'm a little bit upset sometimes that I did come across as this poor, desperate housewife that was thinking she was pregnant and she just wanted to know what her poor friends were up to. And, you know, and I, yeah, I did want to know whether they had families of their own. Of course I did and all that sort of thing. You know, it's human interest. But it annoyed the hell out of me that it wasn't interesting for people to know that actually I was a software engineer. This is my feminist coming out of me. This is my, I wanted people to know that I had that intelligence that it was a good idea. It was, Steve thought it was a crap idea. I loved to. Did he? What did he say? He said, I wasn't interested in what happened to my school friends. No, I don't want to know that. So when did he come round then? Um, Lots of nagging. So it was my idea. And then I had Amber... So when I was on maternity leave, I wanted to learn how to write websites. 
And I, from thinking naively that I was going to be able to have this baby and be really busy learning how to write internet sites and have all the time in the world. Yeah, so how did I get Steve to actually to like the ideas? Because I kept nagging him and saying, listen, just write the basics of the site. Can you just write it for me? Just write it and then I'll just maintain it and I'll just... So he wrote it pretty much within a couple of weeks. And if you were writing a website like that now, people would be able, I presume, to just add their own school and say, this is where I went. And then other people would be able to pile in and say, yeah, I went there too. But I guess then you were manually adding schools, were you, to the database? So the way it was set up, it was quite clever. We loaded up lots of schools. So we were able to sort of pile the database full of all the schools that were existing. So you scraped a whole load of data out of somewhere. Yeah. Then when people went to our website, it was free to register. You register your name. So we've got your name and your email address. And you find your school. And there's no one there. Oh, that's a shame. Or you find your school and you go to your year. There's no one there. That's a shame. Oh, well, I'll leave it. And then you go off and you forget about the site. But that information's there. And hundreds of thousands of people did that. And eventually, actually quite quickly... You go to a site, you go to your year, there's someone there. Oh, my goodness. And you contact them. And it became viral. It was it was a real snowball effect. And there was one story. I remember this guy, he was in his 60s, and he went on the site, and he hadn't seen his old primary school friend or heard from him for 50-odd years and straight away got in contact. And that was within a couple of weeks of us going live, really. That was one of the very, very early stories. I mean, the, the chance of that happening when there was only a few people in the database, you know, but it happened. And that's incredible. And at this point, it's totally a side hustle, isn't it? You're on maternity leave, you're doing it as a hobby so that you can learn a bit about how to design a website. At what point did you think this might become my job? I never actually learned to write the website at all because Steve actually wrote it and then I was responding to emails and then I think it was 2001 we were mentioned on Steve Wright's show with Miles Mendoza website of the week website of the week so for international listeners or those who don't remember so Steve Wright in the afternoon one of the biggest radio shows in Europe I guess used to have this feature where a guy called Miles Mendoza would pick out a website right and he'd say this is the thing we should all do this week this is pre-Facebook pre-Twitter and so he picked Friends Reunited did he but did he tell you in advance he was going to do that? We had no previous knowledge. So people that had used our sites had been writing into him to say, choose this as the website of the week. It's amazing. So uh-huh. our servers crashed. We thought we were being hit by a virus or something. So Jason is Steve's business partner. We were like, Jason, the site's died. It's just, it's crashing. You know, with our, I don't know how many, 10,000 people. I, I don't remember now. If you can imagine the coronavirus where you've just got a couple of people having it and then all of a sudden it goes and hits the top of that curve and just escalates. <laughs> and if we end up, it, that's a bad analogy, isn't it? But it, No, I get it. Miles Mendoza was your super spreader. Oh, absolutely. He, he was great. <laughs> but, but you're saying it was great. But actually, if your servers are crashing and you haven't really got any income coming in because it's a free service, you must have also been thinking, can we afford to run this now? Yeah, definitely. They got to the stage where... We were putting all our time and energy into maintaining the site, responding to emails um, and paying for the servers. And I was like, mm, do you know what? 
this has got a this is a full time job. It was a full time job for myself, for Steve, and for Jason. And we we got to either make money out of this, or it's just got to just we just got to cut it, cut our losses. Um, and Steve and Jason went to the pub and chatted about it over a pint, and said, "Look, let's just charge a fiver." for people not for everybody you can still see your your friends and what they're up to but if you want to make contact with people then let's charge a fiver and that's an annual fee that you then can contact as many friends as you like in that year and that was it just back of the fag packet stuff let's charge something it'll be a fiver it was a small amount that anyone could afford and most people could afford i should say um, and besides that, you didn't have to pay to register or see what your friends were doing. So we just thought most people were just going to be nosy like I was and not really want to make contact. But if you did want to make contact for that fiver, you could contact for a whole year as many friends as you like. I mean, now it seems like it would be a more complex discussion. What should we charge? Should we charge at all? Because we have all now grown up in this environment where amazing equivalent services like Facebook Messenger are free in terms of you're selling your data, but you don't pay any money. But then if someone had said, oh, yeah, we've got this great new website, and of course it's going to cost you £50 a year to get a service like, I don't know, Gmail, you'd think, fair enough, because that's the way the world works. You know, we hadn't been trained at that point into this everything is free idea. And Friends United charging a fiver, I mean, I was only 20 years old, so I wasn't long out of school myself. I paid that fiver. and oh, I paid thank that you. Fi- <laughs> and I paid <laughs> that fiver that. because, exactly as you say, I was nosy at first, you know, is there going to be a gossip board where everyone's slagging off the headmistress? Yes, there was. But then I want to speak to Louise Mitchell, who I went to school with, and there was no other way to do it. And you made it so was easy. She's a girlfriend. She wasn't, no. But I hadn't seen her for four years. And uh, I did meet her in real life in Covent Garden. We went for a beer because of Friends Reunited, because you'd got me to that point where I was on the site and it was like, well, of course, I'm going to do the frictionless last thing and contact them. The postman used to come along with sackfuls of letters for us and the letters just had five pound checks in them and they were literally sackfuls of checks. Was that an option to pay by check? It's pretty much the only option. Oh, was it? There was no online payment system. So I paid a check to you, did I, to you 20 years ago? I must have done. Oh, yeah, I remember your check. I mean, no, <laughs> I don't remember your check. <laughs> what an amazing visual reminder of how well your website's doing. If you had sackfuls of cash turning up at your house every day, that really is quite um, a dramatic underscoring of your achievement, isn't it? It was amazing. I mean, my, as I'm, Steve's parents were around when, on occasion, when the check, the, the, the postman came with these literally bags full of checks. And we're just like, oh my god, can you just envisage us sort of throwing money up and they go, whoa, look at all this money. I mean, this didn't happen to us. Well, it's just so different, isn't it, to hearing a Silicon Valley entrepreneur talking, even one from the time. What well, we're different from a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, is that you think? I mean, you're, you're running it out of your house in Barnet, you don't know how much money is sending up at the house, it's being sent to you in the form of checks, you don't have an exit strategy, you haven't thought to charge. I mean, <laughs> it's not exactly Facebook, is it? No, we were literally this husband and wife couple that just got a good idea and did well from it. By 2003, one in seven UK citizens were members of Friends Reunited. It was a number achieved solely through word of mouth, without ever placing an advert. At its peak, 
it had 23 million users. A couple of memories that spring to mind is um, um, a boy that met up through Friends Reunited with someone he went to university with and was reunited with his cat that his mate stole from him um, <laughs> whilst at university. Other stories I can remember are I had to do an interview with the Head Teachers Association and I had to, they pulled us up because the message boards, people were slagging off their old teachers, calling them paedophiles. And who knows, some of them could have been paedophiles. I mean, And you were dealing with, with those questions, you know, that later the likes of, of Facebook had to deal with, which is, are you a publisher? Because, because, you know, people are using your platform to slag off someone without their consent. Yeah. So, yeah, we had to say, you know, it's down to the individuals to write it and it's their responsibility. At this time, there were a few more people working for us. We had my friend Estelle, who lived across the road. She just had a baby. She had Toy Boy to my Amber, who was Top Totty, their girlfriend, boyfriend. Um, So she was sort of on maternity leave and, and she started working for us. And another friend, Tom, who's the gardener outside that was making a noise a while back, his parents uh, were also good friends of mine. And, you know, they, they started answering a few emails for us as well. So we, we called on friends to help out to start with. And then it became a business. And it was like, OK, yeah, so we need to employ people to help us But out. you can't control all of those bulletin boards all at once. You can't control personal messages people are sending each other about, I fancied you when we were you know, whatever, in year five? No, it was impossible because there was just too many. We, we used to get emails saying, oh, you've, um, you've, you've put my school up wrong. Why have you put my school in this description? And then half an hour later, they'll send another message saying, you still haven't replied to my email. And there'll be Steve and myself sitting in the same room answering emails back to back pretty much. And I'll be answering the email, dealing with a problem. And then he'd get a message exactly the same person asking the same question he said I just can't find what their my problem is it's because I'd already dealt with it so we're just getting this masses of overlap of emails all the time I was sitting in on New Year's Eve and my life was feeling pretty untidy then my heart jumped a million beats when I saw you on Friends Reunite the site also became a byword for hooking up with your teenage crush. This song by Glasgow band The Hussies from 2006 exemplifies the phenomenon. The most high-profile example reported in the papers was goalkeeper David James, who left his wife and reconnected with a former flame after finding her on the website. There were you know, old sweethearts. There were lots of divorces. We had lots of um, we had people complaining because of... Yeah, we we caused the divorces. Obviously, that's what we were we were blamed for. But actually, we just caused we created the medium for people to get in contact with each other. But unquestionably, people did cheat on their spouses because they hooked up with a teenage lust that they rekindled with through your website. And that was a huge part of why your site was kind of sexy and had a free son rather than just being a database like a, a phone number database. Yeah, because you're safe, aren't you? If you're in touch with your old someone you used to go to school with, you're safe because you know that they know you and vice versa. So you just rekindle that friendship and then you start fantasising of how things used to be. And 
Or how things could have been. Could have been. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve's parents, I remember they got a phone call from someone that was really angry. I don't know how they got Steve's parents' phone number saying that their son was responsible for them getting a divorce. That that was quite hard because this person just kept hounding. And what did that teach you about human nature? Because there's something, isn't there, about the power of those first loves that stay with you for the rest of your life. And that's a common experience, I guess. And you were opening the door on that, something that previously would necessarily have been suppressed unless you happened to bump into that person. Yeah, I guess at the time, if I was asked that on a, a radio show or TV, I'd say, you know, the site is just purely there for people to connect together. It's not our responsibility. But I'm probably thinking, oh, aren't they lucky? <laughs> got back in touch with their old flame <laughs> it got to a stage where if we went out everyone would want to talk to us about their reunion and how friends reunited had got got them in touch with such and such and oh i must tell you this and i remember going to there was a marks and spencers in the high street in barnet I remember going there with amber i was pushing her in the push chair up to the counter and she wasn't having a good day she was crying and everything and someone behind the counter said Oh, you're that person that set up Friends Reunite. I'm like, hey, everybody, this is the person that set up Friends Reunite. I'm saying, oh, please, just, I just want to buy my stuff and get out of here because my daughter's crying. And that happened a few times in Barnet. That was just not me. I, I just wanted the, the whole, I wanted the whole to open up and for me just to sink in and just get away from that experience. In case you haven't got the vibe by now, Julie really isn't keen to be recognised as the co-founder of one of Britain's biggest ever startups. I was asked to have an interview with someone at a TV company and they wanted to create a Silla Black style surprise, surprise, but with Friends Reunited and they, they wanted me to host it. <laughs> Can you imagine? I, I'm not articulate. I, I don't claim to be articulate. It's not something that sits easily for me. So I went along for this interview. I remember dressing up as if I should be going for an interview. I think, oh my God, it's so out of my depth. And um, I think within two seconds, the guy that was talking to me thought, no, cut. Yeah, okay, this, just, this is not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can chat a bit, but when I first meet somebody, I'm not going to be, I'm not a silly black. I mean, you, you were at this elevated position at this point where your website was one of the most visited websites in the UK. You were a tech entrepreneur, whether you felt like one or not. Did you get invited to the sort of Martha Lane Fox style glamorous city lunches? It does grate me. Steve went along to all these events and I didn't because I was looking after my baby and then I had Sally the second one so in terms of um, the Silicon Valley thing Steve hooked up with lots of people and it grated me like anything because after Friends Reunite I wanted to create another idea because Steve would go along to these meetings and it'd be oh let's talk about football so you don't know each other but straight away talk about football because you've got that in common well I'm not I haven't got football in common and or cricket or drinking or whatever other sport golf it, it but it's a man's world and, and up the top that's what people all talk about they all seem to go to these business meetings and they connect and they can connect easily because of these links and then they carry on and talk about business and 
And I guess that's why even now there's not so many women up there. You've got to remember, Ollie, that I was the person, I was a computer programmer that sat behind a desk, didn't talk to people, went da-da-da-da, created a program and didn't talk to people. So being forced to go um, and do interviews was way out of my comfort zone. I absolutely hated it. The first interview I had with after Friends Reunited was Click TV, some obscure Sky TV programme. And, I mean, even now... I wear things, if I have an interview, I have it up to my neck, have something, wear something up to my neck. So it obscures the fact that I have this red rash, this red anxiety, excitement, however you like to describe it, rash that goes. And, oh, my God, I, I hate it. So every interview I had to cover up otherwise and put makeup on as well, which I haven't done today, but <laughs> it's lockdown. So the limelight may not be your favourite place, but um, but there was... I mean, I can just see from this period an increasing corporatization of the business. There were spin-offs, you know, Jeans Reunited was a website, wasn't it, that came about. There was a Friends Reunited compilation CD. There was a Friends Reunited dating site. There was a Friends Reunited book. I could go on. Those are business decisions. I even found this Friends Reunited pen. Can you see it? I can. <laughs> this was so not us. Steve and myself weren't really into the whole branded thing that was much jason's uh, baby and getting into was it universal with the records again that was his side of things did you feel like the idea was spinning out of your control a bit oh completely out of our control we were on a a treadmill and we just couldn't get off it's like oh my god because we got off then there'd be stacked loads of emails waiting to be responded to and the yeah in 2005, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp bought MySpace for $580 million. And that was a loss-making platform. Friendry United, which by then had increased its annual subscription to £7.50, was growing at 9% per month. With those kind of numbers, it didn't take long for Julie and Steve to be approached for a sale. We were approached by a few people, um, including 192... Director Inquiries Company. Director Inquiries Company. And uh, they dined us and wined us. Well, actually, they took us to uh, Cirque du Soleil. Nice. And I was very heavily pregnant with Sally. Really didn't want to be sitting watching anything for more than five minutes because I was just (laughs) uncomfortable. And they tried to charm us and everything. And they they were going to buy us. Don't take this as gospel because my memory is a bit jaded about all this. But um, I believe they were going to buy us for £1 million. And I remember thinking, oh, oh my God, we're going to be millionaires. Oh, my goodness. So 192 tried to buy us and then that fell through because I think we recognised we wanted to give more to this site. So there, there was BT were interested and the Daily Mail were interested. I remember Tesco's being interested as well. And then, yeah, ITV. And it wasn't a million pounds that they bought it for, was it? No, it's a few more. Yeah. <laughs> it was 175 million pounds. Wasn't it 132? Well, that might be the cash, and then there were stocks, I understand. So the figure that was given was 175, so maybe the rest was the stocks up to I think it was then, if they, if they then through ITV, if they boosted it up, they had to stay on for another five years or something, then they'd get more money for us. I mean, yeah, that's between which, friends, say, it was in excess of £100 million, so more than 100 times more than you'd expected. 
A lot of people thought that we got all that money, which we didn't. It was divided up, but we still got an amazing amount of money. It was, it was life-changing. It has been life-changing. Um, one of the best things, I guess, that's come out of this is that we're able to, we've set up a charitable trust. And that's a big part of my life, the, where we can give money to different charities that are close to our hearts. And what about here? I mean, is there a bit of um, a kind of unspoken pressure, you know, at the school raffle? You know who they are. They should be digging in their pockets. I remember going in when Amber was in reception at her primary school. I'd just been on GMTV in the morning, <laughs> in the light, as you do, you know. Yeah. And so I went, and nobody knew, nobody apart from close friends knew about the me being um, involved with Friends Reunited because we wouldn't boast about it. It's just not something we did. And we wanted Amber and Sally both to go to a local state school and not have the recognition that they belonged to a family that had just sold their company for millions because that wasn't what we were like. We we weren't like that. We wanted a normal upbringing for our kids. And when I went into the school that morning, somebody I didn't know too well came up and said, oh my God, I just saw you on GMTV this morning. <gasps> I didn't know you'd set up and blah, 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 blah. And I just died. I just thought, oh my God, I didn't want anyone to know this. But you, it's noticeable about you. <laughs> this doesn't sound insulting. I certainly don't mean it to be. <laughs> Go for it. As I was phrasing the question, I'm thinking, does this sound insulting? But it's noticeable about you that you, you drive like a normal car and you wear high street clothes is kind of what I'm thinking. Like, you, <gasps> you seem don't like you someone. don't know where this is from? <laughs> I dressed up especially. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's very nice. You know, I, I've, I've seen your home. It's a nice home. Everything, you have a very solid... Basically, I'm from the same area. You know, have a very solid Barnet middle class experience. Yeah, absolutely. But you wouldn't guess. You wouldn't guess from looking at you or meeting you no. that that's your background. Good. That's our... Why is that important? It's not intentional. It's just how we are. When we moved house, we were, we were pressured into moving up the hill from where we set up Friends Reunited in our three bedroom semi to move to be a, in a bigger house at the top of the hill, which I don't regret because it's close to the shops, but it's still a semi. <laughs> and my kids are grounded, because up until recently, up until up until end of GCSEs, Sally and Amber didn't really know much about Friends Reunited. And it was only when there was a case study in my daughter's GCSE book for business studies and no. A-level book. She's recently, she's just done A-levels, and she's got a Canadian business studies teacher. And... She didn't know anything about Sally with Friends Reunited. And they opened up a page and, right, today we're going to be talking about Friends Reunited. This is a website. And everyone starts giggling, apparently, in the class. <laughs> it's like, oh, my goodness. And she was just like, why are you all laughing? Why, what's going on? What's, is there something you'd like to share with me? And like, miss, miss, that's Sally's mum and dad, that is. <laughs> and we don't understand. Steve and I read the, the article. We have got no idea what all the things are about it's all business stuff beyond us we haven't got a clue what what uh, apparently how they were analyzing our business and how we were thinking at the time well i mean just from this interview i can tell you how they're thinking about it i mean you started it on an idea you didn't start it as part of a silicon valley hub you developed it into something that created a business model for social networking years before social networking had even been invented and then you sold it to a company that ended up having to sell it for 
150 million pounds less than they paid for it. I mean, that's the story of the internet, yeah, isn't it? It's funny, isn't it? Is that not a business studies case? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fascinating. One of the world's first social networks, Friends Reunited, has announced that it will soon be closing down. Friends Reunited was launched in 2000 and was designed to reconnect users with their old school. Do you know what happens when you go to friendsreunited.co.uk now? Is it just a waiting page saying, this is shut down? It's not even that. It's literally nothing. You type it into your web address and it can't find anything. So we were given the opportunity to take on Friends Reunited again, to take it back. We were given it back pretty much for, I might have got this detail wrong, but for a pound. To see if we could resurrect it after ITV sold it to DC Thompson. I still maintain that it could have had a worth. Because if you want to get in touch with an old school friend that's a woman, well, she's changed her name, her maiden name to a married name, perhaps. It's really hard to get in touch. And we had such a, a really, when we had it, it was a really solid model where you could just go and see your school friend and get in touch. And then it just became messy, shall we say, ITV and um, and uh, DC. They, they just changed it beyond recognition. So we tried to change it back again, but it, it just didn't work. So that's Julie's story as far as Friends United goes. But these days she has a very different challenge to deal with. So Valentine's Day last year, I went for a full medical with my husband. He'd been nagging me to do it for a long time. And I put it off because I thought, well, I've got to run on a treadmill and I'm nowhere going to be able to do that because I'm just rubbish at that sort of thing. And I'd had several instances before then that I'd been to the doctor about. But perhaps once a year, oh, gosh, yeah, I've been tripping a bit. Oh, my memory's so bad. And it's like, yeah, 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 okay, everyone's like that. And I said to the doctor that I wanted to have a brain scan or a full medical. And before that, literally in the January last year, I was going on a walk with Steve and I ended up tripping quite a lot and I couldn't quite work out why. And I did go on the power of Dr. Google and discovered that it could be MS. And I thought that's ridiculous. That's why you don't go on Google. Um, and my foot was dragging when I was walking, it was dragging behind and I couldn't, I thought, that's just silly. It's, no, it's not MS. Had went to the full medical, had a full medical, had a brain scan, and uh, the doctor at the time said, "Oh yeah, yeah, it does sound like it's all menopause." Or yeah, that's right. And then after I had the scan, brain scan, and saw the radiologist, the doctor was with her, hit with him, and said, uh, "Okay, sit down. Um, you can see up here. Here's a picture of a brain. In this person's brain, there's lots of white lesions, white spots, and this is your brain. And you can see." Yours is similar. It's not quite as bad, but you've got quite a few white spots in there too. So it looks likely, can't say for definite, but it looks likely that you've got MS. And it was a shock. The feeling that you read about some MS sufferers feeling is like your body's betraying you. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, I, I don't think mine, I've got it too bad at the moment. I remember talking to my parents and telling them that I had it and crying Steve and I eventually talking after having a specialist say yeah it's definitely MS talking to each of the girls and so Steve had just had the year before we always tried to do one up on each other so the year before he had a pulmonary embolism <laughs> when we we're on holiday <laughs> he had to talk to the girls about that to say actually it's hereditary 
And then he said, now mum's got something worse to tell you. I mean, wow, thanks, Steve. Took about, really. So I was, I was holding it all together until he said that. It's kind of extraordinary that there isn't an officially recognised cure, though. And I, I wonder, with your unique insight, having had a, a tech career and then be in the position where you can be a philanthropist like you've described whether you can see a route out if there was a kind of Bill Gates style donor for MS. So overcoming MS, the retreat I went on, has been set up by a guy called Dr. George Jelinek. His mother died of MS and then he had it. And the wife of the chairman or the owner of Brighton Football Club, I should know who they are. I don't. Um, that's, my, that's my brain fog, has MS and she has funded the OMS charity. There's a book that Dr. Jelinek has written and they can send that out to anyone and everyone that has MS for free because they don't want anyone because they can't afford it to to get over this. Yeah, there's already a philanthropist out there doing it and uh, I'd be very happy to to help, help out in that way. But... Um, they're on the case, definitely on the case. But for me, being proactive has helped me to get through this horrible diagnosis. What happened, by the way, with your extended family that you discovered in Denmark? So it turned out that not only have we reconnected with my father's stepmother... But also, my father's father, so my grandfather, had a daughter over there. So my dad has got a new sister. And then, later on, through Jeans Reunited, Steve's side. No. Yeah, wait for it. So through <laughs> Jeans Reunited. So we met up with my dad's new sister, Vivian, and her husband, Froda. And then, through Jeans Reunited, a newfound cousin of mine in contact and said oh I think we share the same grandfather my dad always said that he thought his father probably had a few other children around around the gas works <laughs> so my dad has discovered he's now got a new family he was an only son he has now got a sister in Denmark and a sister in Waterloo and we believe there's another child that belongs to a lady called Nancy Moore who was a girlfriend of my dad's father and my dad reckons that maybe she got up the duff too. (laughs) Okay, so if you're listening to this and your mother or grandmother was Nancy Moore. Yes, exactly. Then Then please get in touch. Julie's still interested in connecting people together. Oh, it'd be amazing. (laughs) My dad would love to meet you. (laughs) Julie Pankhurst. And if you'd like to check out the programme that has been helping her, it is at overcomingms.com. Next up, Alex Fox continues the internet theme. We talk sexting in the foxhole after this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
I'd like to talk about sex, wouldn't you? I'm going to guess yes, because you're still listening. And Alex Fox is here. It's the Foxhole. Hey, Alex. Hello, Ollie. I have been hosting a variety of pub quizzes. So my first question for you, Ollie Mann, what does the ancient Greek term Olisbokalix translate as? And I'm going to give you options. A, vibrating insects. B, lubricating porridge. C, bread dildo. Or D, a peach that looks like a woman's private parts. I'm going to say the peach, D. Is it C? Uh, It is C. Phallic dildos were allegedly made out of a hard-baked bread dough in the Greco-Roman era. So we're talking about roughly 2,000 years ago. Um, Yeah, they didn't have Ann Summers. We know that they made these things because we've seen evidence of them in art. But what we don't know is whether they were actually used to stimulate people or whether they were essentially a ye olde cock joke. I also have a mystery liquid for you to identify, Ollie. Are you ready? I'm pleased we're doing this at a distance and I am ready. This is the liquid describing itself. I was invented in 1904 by a company who also made sutures for sewing people up during medical operations. And I was originally intended for use during surgery as well. Nowadays, outside of the bedroom, I am employed by special effects technicians to create slimy appearances or simulate saliva. And most famously, I was an ingredient in the alien spit in the famous Ridley Scott movies. What am I? Okay, so I mean, I I know that this will be some sticky, webby chemical that also doubles as a lubricant, but I am not aware of chemical names. It's a brand name, not a chemical name. It's KY Jelly. Ah, of course. Yes. I can imagine that would be useful for special effects. I remember there were some kids at school that used it for pranking, um, managed to like put it all the way down the uh, banister on the stairway so that when people were walking down the stairs, they fell down the stairs. That happened to me once and I nearly really hurt myself. Well, at least your hand would be nicely lubricated afterwards so you could lay on the floor and have a wank to comfort yourself. Right, let's take your questions of sex. Uh, This one has come in from a man called Chris. He has given his name, although not the name of his wife, who he says is addicted to sexting. He says, Alex, I discovered her addiction 12 months ago and again and again and again each time she said she had stopped. We visited a therapist where she was very defensive and closed right up, but she said that her sexting addiction was over. I even contacted the man she was speaking to, and he said it was over. Now, almost 12 months later, I find it hadn't stopped. She never even intended to try and stop. I know that sexting is not sex, and that we all do things from time to time that our spouses would not be happy about. I am also no saint. However, I feel that the betrayal and addiction have pushed us to a point where the relationship cannot recover. This is an intense one, isn't it? There are lots of layers here, like a really sour-tasting trifle, or like a, a mille foy of betrayal. But let's deal with this in order. So first up, he believes that his wife is addicted to sexting. So my first question there would be, Is that possible? Can you be addicted to sexting? Um, So to find an answer to that, uh, I spoke to Dr. Susie Gage, who is a psychologist, and she told me that there is actually still a lot of debate about what constitutes an addiction by definition. But it does involve maintaining a behaviour where somebody knows that there are potential risks involved in doing so and where a want to do something has turned into a need or a compulsion. And she said that 
Another defining factor of, of what would be considered a possible addiction is when someone's life has been quite knocked off kilter by their persistent repetition of doing this over and over again. So their desire to do something or consume something is having negative effects, say, on their job or their relationships or the way they're perceived by family members and societies. Now, sexting could potentially fall into this category. There are facets of that behaviour that could potentially come under this banner of problematic compulsion. Um, For example, uh, if you're sexting so much that you can't concentrate or uh, you're getting in trouble at work because you're not getting your job done because you're too busy on your mobile. Also, there are aspects of the sexting process that could potentially make it quite addictive. We're used to, and indeed conditioned, to use our phones a lot anyway. Uh, Add a layer of sex to that too, and that can be quite a potent combination for a lot of people. Okay, so it sounds like the answer to the question, can you be addicted to sexting, is yes, but you sound a bit sceptical. It's difficult to classify it as an addiction officially. I mean, there are still people that argue about whether or not you can be addicted to sex, but what we do know is that it can be a problematic behaviour. And what another thing that Susie told me about addiction and how to get over it is that the person first has to acknowledge that their behaviour is a problem and that it's happening to a problematic level. Which is what he says his wife didn't do in therapy. Yeah, and the addict or the person with the compulsive behaviour also has to really want to stop in order to bring that behaviour to a close. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that that desire to admit how problematic this is, nor the desire to stop are really there here. I'm going to be honest as well and say that I'm not sure that it's the sexting itself that is the addictive element or or the sole addictive element in this scenario. No, it's the infidelity, isn't it? I mean, you know, if this was my wife is addicted to porn, you can understand someone being hurt by that. The reason that he's particularly hurt by this, though, is it isn't just an anonymous face on the screen. He knows the bloke she was speaking to for a year. He contacted him. It is effectively an affair. It's a mental affair, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think the fact that she's only sexting one person suggests that it is the emotional connection she potentially has with that person rather than the sexting which is keeping her coming back if this woman was going to chat rooms and having sexy conversations with strangers or interacting with people that she just met on dating apps in this uh, sexual texting way then i would think that perhaps the sexting was more of um, more central to what was Mm. driving her and then there might be solutions like he could start texting her, right? I mean, if it, it's role yeah. play, basically, then. But this is someone else she's in love with, it sounds like. Well, it might not be love. All right, lust, at least. It might be lust, or there might be some need that is being met by this other person and by sexting being part of that relationship with that other person, which for whatever reason, she's not getting in her marriage. Now, the two of them ostensibly have taken some quite sensible steps towards trying to solve that. So for a start, they went to see a therapist. um, And I quote, the wife was very defensive and closed right up. Okay, the therapy wasn't effective. That might point to the idea that the therapist wasn't the right person. It's really common that you might need to go and see a couple of people Mm. before you find the type of therapy, the approach, and also the specific therapist that works for you and your partner. But also, I think for therapy to work, 
someone really needs to engage with it and again there's this issue here that it doesn't seem like the wife really wants to i don't think it's really her ability to stop that is lacking here it's a desire to do so. He does mention in the letter, I'm no saint. And I feel like that's been maybe glossed over. Has there been some kind of transgression in the past that has made the wife maybe feel unwanted or spurned? I'm not saying that it's Chris's fault. Um, it, there, there might be lots of factors at play here. They might both have done things that are regrettable or, or would be considered um, unfaithful. They need to have a proper talk about that. There are also reasons, aren't there, that people stay in relationships that frankly aren't working, particularly marriages, that go way beyond sex. You know, it might be that, yeah. Chris, your wife is finding her sexual pleasure elsewhere because she wants to stay in your marriage because, I don't know, maybe you have kids and you haven't mentioned that. Maybe there's a financial reason. Or it might be the case that um, the person that she is having this, um, at least we know it's an emotional affair, even if it's not a physical one, um, maybe living or being with that person in a, in a full-time relationship isn't possible. Perhaps he has a partner, perhaps he lives somewhere else. Uh, and, and to be honest, I think that Chris and his wife need to share a lot more information with each other in order to be really honest and open about exactly what's going on here. Because I don't think that a sexting addiction is the primary problem. I'm interested in the word sexting. I mean, it's a kind of catch-all term and it's quite an old-fashioned one now and I understand why it's stayed the course. It's like people saying, I'll Skype you when they actually mean they might use FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. But if Chris literally means in this case that his wife is sending words to someone, is that different, do you think, to having a video chat or to sending intimate photos? That is such an interesting question because what people define as cheating and where individual people's boundaries are in terms of what's okay and what aren't really differ from person to person. Some people I've chatted to, for example, are a-okay with their partner watching porn, like a pre-recorded video of a sex act taking place, but they're not all right with them visiting, say, a cam girl and being involved in a live performance where they give instructions to somebody. Because even though it's still a performance, they felt that there was more of an emotional attachment there. There was more of a of an of a live exchange taking place with another person. So it's a subtle difference, but a really crucial one for some people. And yeah, I can imagine how for some folks, exchanging something cheeky that's written down seems more like a fantasy, um, a, a saucy exchange of ideas, whereas actually exchanging videos or images, you know personal pictures of someone's body uh, where the element of the imagination is taken away that makes it all a bit more tangible and a bit more real and perhaps a bit more uh, of a boundary crosser there yeah I mean if she was in a kind of erotic book club you know where people shared saucy stories that again yeah. is different to I want to do this to you I'm imagining you doing this to me yeah this is something that all couples really need to have a chat about, really. Where do the, the boundaries lay for them? And how solid are those boundaries? You know, for some people, they discover that there might be some uh, lines that it's interesting and, and quite erotic for them to experiment with, with pushing a little bit. Lots of people do find that um, as their relationship goes on and they feel safe and secure inside it, crucial words there, that they feel confident enough in their bond that they can allow their partner to do things like um, put on a cam show or go to a sex club together, things that previously might have made them feel insecure. 
I wonder if there might be some people listening who are thinking, oh, me or someone I'm close to, I think really do genuinely have an addiction to sexting. What do I do if that is the case? People can often be quite delusional about how much they're actually doing something. So Mm. monitoring exactly how often you are sexting or how much you're using your phone uh, can be really helpful in terms of facing up to the scale of the problem. Um, The second thing that might be helpful is blocking or changing your number. Um, If you're sexting other people and they're enjoying it, and for them it might not be problematic, either emotionally or in terms of how much it's interfering with their life, so they might not have any reason to desire to stop, I think it's best to tell those people why you know that you are stopping and then and then block their number or change yours um you need to remove that temptation and that source otherwise every time your phone goes off and somebody is tempting you in there they're essentially like an accidental drug dealer aren't they in your back pocket um removing environmental and circumstantial props can be really helpful in a lot of addictive behaviors too you see people go away to rehab get clean when they're in that um, that unusual environment that is away from all of their usual triggers. And then they go home and they relapse because all of the physical things around them remind them of whatever it was they were addicted to. And all of those same emotional um, and psychological triggers are there again. If you can change the environment that you return back to, that can really help you give things up. So, for example, if you found that um, you are often sexting in the bathroom because you could sneak away for a wee when you're at work or when you're with a partner and that that was the time that you felt compelled to get your phone out, purposefully leaving your phone in another room when you go away can help you change that circumstance and switch things up. So all said and done then, what should Chris do in your view? Chris, I think, needs to admit to himself that his wife does not have a sexting addiction. She has an addiction to getting her needs met by somebody else. And they need to talk about what those needs are, why they're not being met within the relationship and what they can both do if they want to to come to a compromise and work out um, some practical things that they're going to do to make things better. For that to work, though, she needs to be on board. They both have to want to make this better. They both have to want to save the marriage. Best of luck, Chris. Uh, If you have a question for Alex to answer on a future edition of The Foxhole, what do you need to do with it? What you shouldn't do with it, please, uh, is DM your question to me on Instagram or Twitter or try and find my personal email address and and contact me that way. Yeah, that's not what it's for. No, exactly. But But if you do have have a question for the show... Then you need to go to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback. Uh, Also, don't send your sex questions to me personally. I have no use for them. And if you want to follow Alex on the socials and not send her personal sex questions, uh, where can we find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at AlexFox, spelt A-L-I-X-F-O-X. And with that, we have reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Adam Hills in Wickford, Essex, whose wife Becca writes in to say, Ollie, we love your show, and I would be over the moon if my amazing husband could be appointed ambassador. He introduced me to Answer Me This many moons ago, and that led us to The Modern Man, so I think he thoroughly deserves the title. I've left you a review on Apple Podcasts entitled A Firm Favourite 
five stars. <laughs> Good enough for me, Becca. So, Adam, I now pronounce you Manbassador for Wickford. Congratulations. If you would like to be Manbassador, then buy us a beer and drop us a line via our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with something new on August the 1st. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.